again. And the thought that I began and I didn't feel like I reached a, a completion point with is that sin is when we step outside of God's purpose and design. And there was a New Testament writer, the Apostle Paul, he said it like this, whatever is not of faith is sin. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And that's kind of a penetrating statement to think about. It kind of makes us all do a heart check. And whenever our actions aren't consistent with what we say we believe about God, the scripture identifies that as sin. And so with the sin of one man, Romans chapter 5 tells us that by one man's offense, death reigned through that one. And the judgment that came from that one offense resulted in condemnation. And by one man's disobedience, we're talking about Adam, the original man, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. It's a kind of a shorthand way, a concise way of saying that because of what Adam did and Eve did in the Garden of Eden in the beginning, that sin nature has been passed down and imputed to us. And as a result, we find ourselves struggling with many of the same things that they did. And oftentimes, we're, we look around and we wonder how we got here. And the Bible gives us answers for how we got here and even for where the Lord is taking us. It rubs us the wrong way sometimes to hear that we've got a spiritual representative that's doing us so much harm, that there was one man, one woman that sinned in the garden, and as a result of their transgression, we've got so much trouble. Every time I fold laundry, I think about those two. And I think it did not have to be this way. And there's a lot of laundry at the Williams home. But in all seriousness, there's many things much more serious than laundry that we look at and we, we instantly recognize that it should not be this way. And we look at that kind of representation that Adam gives us as our ancestral father, and we don't really like that. We don't like that kind of representation. It doesn't do us any favors. And it's possible to look at it and say, I don't like that system of spiritual representation that that story presents to me. And my thought was incomplete, I guess, in the sense that even though we don't like that representation, representation is still the way that things work. And it's because of the action of that one man that has driven us down into a sin pit that we can't possibly get out of on our own. But it's the action of one man that can pull us out and restore us. And that representation of Jesus Christ and his righteousness is absolutely fundamental to our faith. If we lose the doctrine of him in my place, we lose something about our faith that we can't recover without it. There is still a system and a way of spiritual representation that affects our everyday life. We have a decision, though, of which is going to represent us spiritually. Are we going to retain our representation of the original Adam who sinned and transgressed against God and his sin is imputed to us? Or are we going to be born again into a new life and allow somebody else to take Adam's place and be represented instead by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
It's in that decision that there is life. There's life. It's the only place that there is life. There is no way to God except in Jesus Christ. And so the doctrine that I'm talking about, him and my place, is absolutely fundamental to what we believe and how we're going to live. And if you've never studied it and you've never connected the dots for yourself, or if you struggle to put it together in a way that you could teach it to somebody that you're witnessing to or that you're discipling, I want to take an exit ramp off of Sunday night, Sunday morning's message, and I want to get into some things tonight that I think are going to make things a little more clear. And I think there's going to be some light bulbs that come on as the Lord gives us that revelatory knowledge about a very, very important doctrine of the Bible. I want to turn your attention in Scripture to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. I've got a handout that I've prepared, and we've only got a limited number of them, so if you're with somebody and you're able to share them, uh, that would be terrific. And if I made too few copies, then I will do better next time. I apologize. And if you would like a copy for yourself later, I can accommodate that, but I've got a limited number of them right now. Thank you, Sister Savannah, for handing those out. And we do have a few ink pens, too, so if you do not have a writing utensil of your own. These are just, uh, these are just as a way of, of, of following along uh, to keep things as absolutely clear as possible because this is a very important doctrine of Scripture. And it's an important one not just to uh, have applied to your life, but it's an important one to have that revelatory knowledge about because it is so important to be able to describe to somebody that has questions about our faith. As the handouts are, are being passed around, let me, let me expound on that for a moment before I read the text in 1 Corinthians. To somebody that has not grown up around the church or even somebody that is actively practicing a different faith that's interested in Jesus Christ, the doctrine that we're talking about tonight, which really centers on Jesus Christ and Calvary and the cross and the blood of Jesus Christ, really has no equal in any other religious system. And so if you haven't been somewhat acclimated to the language of sacrifice and blood and uh, the plan of God and how sin can be dealt with and, and those sorts of things, that's going to seem very foreign to somebody that either hasn't been around the church or that is actively practicing another faith. And so we, as believers, if we're going to be witnesses to those people, we're going to have to have some kind of rudimentary understanding of exactly how sin is dealt with, exactly what this doctrine is all about. And the good thing is that it's not, it's not a difficult doctrine to understand. It, it, it's just that there's a, there's a thread through the Bible that we can go to the book of Genesis and we can start to look and see how God's plan works itself out over time until we get to Calvary and Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, I'm going to read from the New King James Version, says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I'm going to read that again. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, 
but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's on the top of the handout, and my topic that I would assign for tonight is that there's only one saving message. There's only one saving message. Why is it the message of the cross? Why is the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified the only saving message? Why is it so important to have some sense of revelatory understanding about what happened at Calvary and why Calvary was necessary? It's because that at Calvary, at that place, is where Jesus bled and died and once and for all dealt with the issue of sin. And so when we're looking at a doctrine like this, as, so, as it is so much of the time, the most important place to start is at the beginning in the book of Genesis. And I did this on Sunday. If you were here on Sunday morning, we went to the book of Genesis and we looked at how the events transpired there. But for the sake of clarity tonight, I would go ahead and go back there again because I don't want to skip that. It's absolutely bedrock foundational to understanding what God's plan is all about. In the beginning, God does something absolutely amazing. He does something absolutely that's so such a miracle that we almost take it for granted. And it's this thing called life. God breathes life on the earth. There's creatures and there's plants and then finally there's human beings. And in human beings, God creates them in his own image. And he breathes into them what the Bible calls the breath of life. And man becomes a living soul, a living being. There's consciousness that man has that the other creatures do not possess. And they have what we call the power of choice. Each and every one of us, made in the likeness and in the image of God, have the power of making decisions and choices of our own. And the whole earth in the beginning is teeming with this miracle called life. And then it doesn't take very long that sin enters the picture. God had ordained that there would be one thing that Adam and Eve would not partake of, and it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it was the one thing that he asked them to stay away from. It was the one thing that still afforded them the power of choice. It meant that they were in a voluntary relationship with God, that they were doing their best to make choices that would be pleasing unto him, that would allow them to remain in perfect relationship with their creator. And it didn't take very long that sin entered the picture because they partook of the fruit of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil. Disobedience exploded onto the scene and it immediately had consequences. And this is a doctrine that the New Testament expounds on. What the Old Testament in Genesis chapters 2 and 3 presents to us in the form of narrative. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5 writes to the church, not in a story, but he presents it as doctrine and he traces the line from what happened in the garden to what we are facing in our world today. I referenced it a little while ago, but I would turn your attention to Romans chapter 5, and let's just read it together. Let's read it together. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. This is it in the New King James Version. It says this, Romans 5, 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. 
For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who hadn't sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. And the one saving message that we're looking at together tonight is found even in that same chapter, if you just go a few verses previous to that. Verse 6 says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates, I love that word. I love it when that word appears in Scripture. God demonstrates his own love for us. He didn't just tell us about how much he loved us, but he demonstrated it. When God demonstrates his love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled will be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation or the propitiation, the reconciliation. That's what happened. Salvation is only through Jesus Christ. If you want to put it even more concisely, you might write down this scripture on your page if you've got one. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And what Paul does in Romans chapter 5 over the course of several paragraphs he almost packs it into one single verse in, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, when he writes, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This plan of God is built on the concept of sacrifice. Turn to your neighbor and say, sacrifice. Who can give some kind of definition of sacrifice? Any, anyone want to offer a definition? We're not looking for Merriam-Webster, just a, a definition. What is sacrifice? Not Sister Savannah. All right, very good. Giving up something valuable. That's what sacrifice is. We know, what, we know about sacrifice. It's a word. It's, it's not one of those old-fashioned Bible words that never makes its way into our vocabulary anymore. Sacrifice. We understand the concept of sacrifice. And sacrifice, <coughs> pardon me, sacrifice is what this doctrine is built on. Sacrifice. Sacrifice was going to be the foundation of the one saving message that God was going to explain to us through the pages of the Bible. And so it was that when we come upon Adam and Eve, and after they've sinned, that they hear the voice of God. And when they hear the voice of God in the garden, after they've sinned, they attempt to hide from God. And they discover that God is not someone that you get to hide from. Genesis chapter 3, verse 21 says that Adam and his wife the Lord God made tunics of skin, and God clothed them. Adam and Eve were running around in the garden. They realized that they were naked. 
the Lord had opened, their eyes had been opened because of they had partaken of the fruit that, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in the meantime, they had found leaves of a plant and they had put the leaves of that plant over themselves to cover up and to hide their nakedness and to hide their shame. And when God came upon them and found them, he instead made for them clothing out of animal skins. God himself initiated the act of sacrificing a living thing in order to cover sin. Right here in Genesis chapter 3, you can see God's plan already beginning to roll out. What looks like even just a minor detail that God found them and made for them clothing that was different than what they had already had feels like a minor detail, but it's actually so important because it's the very, very beginning. It's, it's the seed stage of the plan of God. It's why Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 sa- explains for us. It says, the eyes of Adam and Eve were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed up fig leaves together and they made themselves coverings. They tried to deal with it on their own, but the first thing God does when he shows up on the scene is he corrects it because it's not adequate for what needed to happen. Sin immediately produced shame and nakedness. Man had covered their nakedness or tried to cover it with sh- and tried to deal with the shame with fig leaves. And clothing them with animal skins shows that the human effort that was going in to dealing with sin was not sufficient. That's something we need to understand because there's a lot of things in the world that they identify that there is a problem. But there's a lot of human efforts to try to remedy the problem on our terms. And the earliest pages of Scripture tells us that no amount of human effort or ingenuity is going to be enough to deal with the problem of sin and shame. And so God seeing that it wasn't sufficient, took animals and used their skins. And this was an improvement by God over what the human beings had tried to do on their own. This was different in nature from what Adam and Eve had done with the fig leaves. Because Adam took leaves from an inanimate, unfeeling tree. But God, when he addressed the issue, showed something different because he deprived an animal of its life. And he, in doing that, put on display and demonstrated that the shame of a man or a woman from sin would be relieved only one way, that it was going to be a life for a life. And Adam would have never thought to do what God did. Because death was unfamiliar to Adam. Death was something that they were not accustomed to dealing with in the garden before sin entered the picture. It never crossed Adam's mind to kill an animal and make clothes with the skins and the hides of that animal. And so he took the fig leaves. But when God stepped onto the scene, God had to do something that had never been done before. God had to do something completely unprecedented that Adam would never have conceived up on his own. And God took 
an animal and deprived it of its life and spilled the blood of that creature in order to have some material to cover the shame and nakedness of Adam and Eve. And so immediately when Adam and Eve received these new garments, it became clear to Adam that death was the primary consequence for sin. Death is the primary consequence for sin. Sin couldn't be covered by a bunch of leaves gathered from a bush as he passed by. Sin couldn't be dealt with by gathering up something and pulling it off of a tree or a shrub, knowing full well that it was just going to grow back the next season. Sin wasn't going to be allowed to be dealt with so cheaply. Only by pain and by blood was sin going to start to be dealt with in the human race. Paul expounds on this, and we understand it in Romans chapter 6 when he says that the wages of sin is death. And Adam immediately gained an understanding of what that meant. He was unfamiliar with the concept of death. But when God stepped on the scene and action had to be taken because there was shame and sin and nakedness and some pitiful excuse of an attempt to deal with it on human terms, God killed an animal and used the skins as a garment for Adam and Eve. Sin can't be atoned for by a mechanical action. Sin is never going to be dealt with by a process that's devoid of feeling or sacrifice. The track of every sinner that's walked the face of the earth is marked with blood. And there is no cheap or easy process for the sinner to be restored. There's a few things that Genesis chapters 2 and 3 reveal, and they're on the handout that many of you have. The first thing that's revealed, if I were to just take the territory we've covered in the last several minutes and distill it down to a few sentences, the first would be this. Man's covering for himself is inadequate. Man's covering for himself is inadequate. When we try to deal with sin on our terms, we can't even break even. It's such a deep pit that we are in, that any attempts to deal with it independently on our own fall woefully short. The second is that men have found that their sin reaches far beyond their own life. Human beings have discovered over the course of time that their sin reaches far beyond just their own individual life. Said another way, we can look around at the world and we can instantly recognize that sin is not easily contained. The world is in a state of chaos and disarray. It's full of disorders. It's full of things that are out of order, that are not as they should be. The world is full of the consequences of sin. And every day, on a daily basis, you and I come into contact with the consequences of sin, whether it's direct consequences or indirect consequences. Our lives are filled with encounters 
with the consequences of sin. And they all share the same origin point. That humanity is out of alignment with God and his original design. And so our sin and the reach of our sin, the scope of our sin, the effect of our sin, reaches far beyond just my little personal bubble. Sin is never contained. And third, we cannot rise above the consequences of sin except by intervention from God. We cannot rise above the consequences of our sin without the intervention of God. Not only can we not break even, but there is no hope apart from God of being completely fulfilled as a person apart from his grace and his salvation. And that salvation always and only comes from a plan that involves sacrifice. Turn to your neighbor and say that word again, sacrifice. It's not just any sacrifice. Sister Savannah gave us a terrific definition of sacrifice earlier. But it's not just any sacrifice that we're talking about. When we're talking about this particular kind of sacrifice, we're talking about the one saving message, the plan of God to save anybody that would come to him in repentance. We're not talking about any old kind of sacrifice. We're talking particularly about blood sacrifice, blood sacrifice. And God's actions in the garden give us the first hinting example. You almost have to read between the lines. You know God gets animal skin somehow, but it doesn't really paint the picture for us and tell us, you know, and tell us how God chose the animals and what animals they were and how he, you know, sacrificed them and how he actually got the skin. We don't get that information, but we can, we can see that there's information there that we can infer, and we know that something Something happened in the garden that set the foundation up for this plan. It was blood sacrifice. It was blood sacrifice. And very soon after the events of the garden, Adam and Eve had children. And the next generation in Genesis chapter 4, if you would turn there with me, the next generation has to start dealing with this very same issue. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 2 says this, that Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but God did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. If you know the story of Cain and Abel, you know that the events that happened next end in Cain murdering and killing his brother Abel. And what happens that fateful day with these two brothers and their respective sacrifices paints the picture and develops the picture a little bit further for us of what started in the garden when God came upon Adam and Eve and they had tried to deal with things on their terms and God provided skins and offered 
a, some semblance of a blood sacrifice to atone and to, to start to deal with Adam and Eve's sin. The picture further develops in the very next chapter between these two brothers and starts to present to us even more of the elements of where God's plan was going. Abel was a righteous person. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that he was righteous. He was a righteous individual. He did, meaning, he did nothing to deserve the death that he got that day. Genesis chapter 4 verse 10, reading on, God finds Cain and God asks Cain and says, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Blood sacrifice. God has a special sensitivity to blood. Not a squeamish kind of... Anyone have sensitivity to blood like that? You don't like seeing blood? All right, no one. All right, Brother Mike, you can be honest. I don't like seeing blood. Don't care for it, especially when it's mine. Just don't care for it. I could do without it, you know? I could do without seeing it. It belongs inside. I like to keep it there. Yeah, where you go? Some people have a sensitivity to blood like that. A lot of people do. That's one of those God-given instincts. God has a sensitivity to blood, too. It's not the same kind. God comes to Cain, says, what have you done? Your brother Abel's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And with that simple question and statement, God there introduces the language of blood and blood sacrifice. Here's this man, Abel. He's being obedient to the pattern of God of blood sacrifice that God has instituted. This is what God started in the Garden of Eden. And Abel, this righteous person, is doing his best to bring himself in a broken world into alignment with the God that he knows. He's bringing his very best to God. The scripture says he brings the very best of his flock, the first fruits of his flock. This is the picture of a human being who is submitted to the plan of God. Among those who are called believers in Scripture, Abel is first among them. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4 tells us that by faith, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained the witness that he was righteous. Whatever may be shrouded about the events in the garden and God providing skins to Adam and Eve from some other creature, how God made those skins and how he got those and how he delivered them to those first two human beings, whatever is shrouded about that story and however much we have to infer and almost read between the lines to understand what took place, there is nothing left to conjecture about what happened between Cain and Abel. It's absolutely plain in the very next chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 4, that there was blood sacrifice required and that Abel met that standard with his sacrifice. He brought animals. He brought 
creatures. He brought the very best. And Cain, who was a tiller of the ground, brought the first fruits of his crop. And even though his heart may have been in the right place, it's possible to be sincere and to be sincerely wrong. I'm going to say that again because I know the kind of world we're living in right now that presents a message that everybody can have their own truth. It's possible to be sincere and to be sincerely wrong. I don't know what Cain's attitude was like that day. I don't want to speculate and throw him under the bus any more than he's already been been, uh, disparaged. But it's entirely possible that Cain, that he had good intentions. We know that he brought the very best of what he had, but what he had was not what God needed because God's plan, that one saving message, was one of blood sacrifice. Violence sweeps in. Cain's countenance falls and violence sweeps in and destroys Abel. Cain murders Abel. He spills Abel's blood. The blood that belonged to that submitted and righteous human being, Abel. Abel is that prototype of a righteous person who dies. And if you'll listen, if you'll listen to the word of the Lord, you'll hear that scripture has an echo. If you'll look, you'll see that there's a blood trail through the Bible and that it starts right in these very first chapters that we're looking at together. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 tells us a very important truth. If you don't have that verse highlighted or written down, you need to go to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22. It tells us that blood is necessary to deal with sin. Blood sacrifice, absolutely necessary to deal with sin. Here's what the verse says. According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Without shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness, washing away of sin. There can be no approach to God apart from the blood. To deal with the sin of the entire human race, a very special blood sacrifice was going to be necessary. And it was going to be the bloody and fatal sacrifice of a perfect human being. Where would such a person come from? The musicians would come. Where would such a person come? come from. I don't think I have to explain in great detail this evening that that person is Jesus Christ. Every human being was corrupted after the pattern of their father, Adam, and his sin. And there was no perfectly innocent, perfectly righteous person who could ever do what you and I needed to be done. There wasn't a single person, Brother Turner, on the face of the earth that met the standard, that met the qualifications to deal with sin in a way that just didn't just push sin back and roll it back a year, 
but it dealt with it and covered it and sent it into remission. Where would such a person come from? And that's, that's the miracle. That's the grace of the incarnation, of God manifesting himself in human flesh. I know you see with me how important this doctrine is, how fundamental it is, how we can never lose it. We can never compromise it. We can never let it get foggy or blurry to us. But there's times when we need to go to the word of the Lord like we have done tonight and like what I hope to do next week to follow it up. When we need to make some very, very important connection points through scripture. Because there's people that we come into contact with that either A, they've been around the church and they're looking for more and they don't completely understand some of this. Or B, they've never been around the church. They're not used to any of this language. And when you start talking about the blood and you start singing about the blood and you start singing about the perfect lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world and we start using some of those phrases and, and, and words that we use and, and they're appropriate and they're biblical, but they're foreign to the uninitiated. Maybe even somebody that practices a completely different belief system. That the idea that a God would manifest himself and offer himself as a blood sacrifice for sin. It's just so completely off of their radar that we've got to go back to the beginning and say, listen, there was a God. He created everything. And when he, when he created it, he created it very good. And then sin and disobedience crept in. And, and, but he had a plan. He had a plan. And he has a plan to redeem us. And there's a plan of salvation. And let me tell you about it. Let me tell you about how we got to where we are today. And then let me tell you about how God came onto the scene and changed everything. Let me tell you about a new birth experience that you can have. That you don't have to be identified with that old identity, that old Adam. But there's one that scripture calls the second Adam. That we can take on his identity and we can start to take on his nature. And in the course of time, there's fruit of his spirit that will start to develop and be produced in your life. And what a marvelous thing can take place in somebody's life. Brother Burke, somebody that has a testimony like what you shared just a little while ago that didn't have anything going for them. But now there's a spirit indwelling and working inside of them and producing what used to produce corruption and death is now a fountain of life. Out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. As foolish as it may seem in the eyes of man, one man, Jesus Christ, died for the sins of the whole world. And it wasn't a theatrical death. It wasn't any special effects. It was a real painful human death of a perfectly innocent person, an extremely high price. Because of that, I think you'll agree with me as we stand. Because of that, Jesus Christ is worthy of all worship. Because of that, he's worthy of all worship. My prayer tonight has been 
that there would be two things happen. That the Lord would equip us with revelatory knowledge of spiritual things and that he would deepen our worship and deepen our love for him. We're going to sing together. I want to invite you to lift up your hands and just take on a posture of worship and say, Lord, I love you. I want to understand more about you. I want you to impart some of that revelatory spiritual knowledge unto me. And Lord, I want my worship to get deeper. Come on, one of the most powerful things we can do is have our worship just get deeper and grow deeper roots and say, Lord, I want to be a better worshiper. I want to draw closer to you than I've ever been. Lord, I love you.